As you watch this teaching, please subscribe, like, and comment so more people can see. Welcome to Home Group. My name is Rick Renner. It's Tuesday night, and last night we had a blast with you. And the we is me and Denise, Paul, and Joel. Hi, guys. We're here again tonight. Hey, Rick. Hey, Home Group. Welcome. We're so glad that you're with us. And I know that we say that every single time. But at every single time, it's absolutely the truth. Because it's a privilege. Isn't it a privilege that they spend their time being with us? Yes, it is. absolutely. It is a privilege. And we're so grateful. And Jesus said that we're two or more are gathered together in his name. And we're gathered together tonight in his name with you that he the very i am god himself is in the midst of us what could he do right here in the midst of us so we're glad to share this with you all right joel what's our next question our next question is how many miles did paul walk to preach the gospel all right that's a good question you know mom and i grew up Denise and I grew up in a denomination that taught us that the Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And, oh my goodness, we had so many ideas about what was the thorn in the flesh. For example, some people said that he had an eye disease, mm -hmm. and they said that his eyes drained all the time, and it looked like glaucoma, and it looked like cataracts, and this horrible, horrible eye disease. There's a big problem with that. Jesus healed his eyes. That's right. Jesus healed his eyes in Acts chapter 9. He did not have an eye disease. Then we heard that he was a hunchback. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> then we heard that Paul had club feet, that he was either born with club feet or that his feet had been deformed because they had been broken so many times during the act of persecution. None of that was the thorn in the flesh. The thorn in the flesh was just people. You know anybody that just kind of is a thorn in your side? That was the thorn in the flesh. And that's why he prayed three times, Lord, please remove these problem people from my life. Well, even if God removes one, another one's going to come. And if God removes that one, another one's going to come. And Paul was saying, God, please, please, these people, remove these problem people. And God said, hey, that prayer's not working but my power will be perfect in your weaknesses, and I will empower you to deal with all those people. Amen. But what does this have to do with how many miles Paul walked? Because if Paul had club feet, he could not have done his ministry. He could not have done his ministry. You say, why? Well, I'm going to read to you from this book, which is called Chosen by God. If you do not have Chosen by God, you need this book. The foreword is written by Joyce Meyer, but I want to read to you. Are you ready for this, guys? Listen to this. I've just written it here. Okay, you guys listening? Paul walked from Antioch to Pisidia to Iconium. Then he walked from Iconium to Lystra. Then he walked from Lystra to Derby. From Derby, he walked back to Lystra, and from Lystra, he walked back to Iconium. From Iconium, he walked back to Antioch, Pisidia. From Antioch, Pisidia, he walked through the whole region at Pamphylia, and then he walked all the way to Perga. From Antioch, Paul walked 
through the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Then he walked back through the cities of Derbe and Lystra. Then he walked to Phrygia and walked throughout the regions of Galatia. After that, he walked to Messiah. Then he walked all the way to Troas. That's amazing. From Philippi, he walked through Amphipolis and Apollonia. Then he walked to Thessalonica. Then he walked to Berea. He took a ship from Berea to Athens, but from Athens he walked to Corinth. He sailed from Corinth to Syria, and from Syria he walked all the way to Ephesus. From Ephesus he sailed to Caesarea, but from there he walked back to Antioch. From Antioch he walked all over the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. Then he walked to the inner coast to Ephesus. The list of places where Paul traveled to fulfill his ministry is amazing. Paul did a lot of walking in the course of his ministry. And if you add up all the miles or kilometers that Paul walked, he spent more time walking than he did preaching. I think that is amazing. Because he is remembered for his preaching and his writing, he is not remembered for his walking. Mm -hmm. But Paul couldn't do his ministry till he got where he needed to go. And if you add it all together, Paul walked thousands of miles. Thousands of miles. Now, somebody may ask, where do you think Paul was when he got all of his revelation? I think he was walking. Because the majority of his life, he was walking. His actual ministry was a pretty minimal period of time. He was walking and walking and walking and walking and walking to get to all of those places. Last year, I went to Tarsus with Paul. Oh, it was a great trip, Antioch and Tarsus. And I did my stand-ups <clears throat> for my regular TV program. We got to see where Paul was born. Got to see the, the ruins of Paul's house. It's really, it's all documented. And... I was talking to our guide that I've worked with for, I guess, 15 or 20 years. And he said to me, you know, he said, that Apostle Paul must have been an amazingly tough guy. He said, just to get from here to Antioch, Pisidia, he said, you nearly have to go over the top of the mountain. And he said, that guy walked up and down, up and down, here and there. He said he spent most of his time walking. We actually talked about how him almost being fit like an athlete in order to walk as much as he walked. He had to really oh, wow. have a grip <coughs> on the wholeness of Jesus Christ. <coughs> and I've written here, no wonder Paul could say, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. <coughs> he had a lot of time to pray in tongues as he walked across the east and northeast side of the Mediterranean countries to preach the gospel and establish the church. And I want to say one more thing. Paul always traveled in a company of travelers. It also gives you what kind of insight, an insight to what kind of relationship he had with those travelers. They had a very intimate relationship with the people that he traveled with. They fought together. They walked together. They defended each other against bandits, serpents, scorpions, all the things they had to deal with. They had to forge rivers where there were no bridges. They really defended each other and loved each other. And I think that's important because people kind of have a false concept about ministry, that it's all in the pulpit. It's not all in the pulpit. The pulpit is a very important part, but it's just one part. There's a lot you got to do before you ever get to a pulpit. Any comments? Well, he spent a lot of time in prison. He did. He spent a lot of time in prison as well, but we're talking about walking. Well, I was thinking about his life, how he spent his life walking in prison, ministry. That's right. Training leaders. All right, next question. 
Why did Jesus move his ministry headquarters to Capernaum? Anybody know the answer? Well, first of all, I think it's interesting, the whole concept that Jesus had a ministry headquarters. Because when you read the Gospels, it seems like he was just moving around from one place to the next, and every city he went to, that's where he was at the moment. But Jesus had a hometown. He had a ministry headquarters. But it wasn't his original hometown. Hmm. His original hometown was? Nazareth. Nazareth. But when Jesus stood up in the synagogue and opened the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61 and said, Today these scriptures are fulfilled in your ears. That wasn't in Nazareth. That was in Nazareth. That was in Nazareth. The people were infuriated. And they rejected Jesus. And we're told in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus moved his ministry from Nazareth to Capernaum. Well, the first of all, I want to say several things about Nazareth. The people of Nazareth really missed a great blessing because Nazareth could have been filled with miracles mm -hmm. if they had just had an open heart. But secondly, Nazareth wasn't really a place to have a world-impacting <laughs> ministry because there were no main roads through Nazareth. Nazareth was over on the side. It was hard to access. But Capernaum, now that's a different story. Well, first of all, he moved to Capernaum because the scriptures prophesied that he would. The scriptures prophesied that. But from a natural standpoint, it's pretty intelligent. I mean, if you've got to move your ministry somewhere, you might as well move it to where it's beautiful, where you can connect with a lot of different kinds of culture and people. And Capernaum was the largest port on the Sea of Galilee the biggest. Capernaum was the center for collecting all taxes in that part of Galilee. There was a lot of money in Capernaum. You can, in fact, you can go to the remnants of Capernaum today and you see the synagogue, a fourth century synagogue, which is built on the first century synagogue foundation. It is elaborate. There was a lot of money in Capernaum. There was a centurion in Capernaum, which means there was a military presence in Capernaum. And Capernaum was right on the border with another country. So before you could pass into Israel, you had to pass through that border. So a lot of foreigners were coming and going. And there's something else about Capernaum. It was a very wealthy town, right on the water. What a place to live. And there was a road called the Via Maris. The word Via Maris means the way of the sea, but it was a highway. It started in Damascus, and it went from Damascus all the way past the Sea of Galilee. Then it turned west, and eventually it went over into Egypt. Everyone traveling north or south had to take that road. <clears throat> and if you were going north or if you were going south, it required you to pass the city of Capernaum. Capernaum. And in fact, today, if you go to Capernaum, there is a modern road right along the very edge of Capernaum, and it's built right on top of that ancient road. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people traveled on that road, and every time the Jews had a feast in Jerusalem, they had to take that road to get to the city of Jerusalem. So without ever leaving home, Jesus could touch the whole world. He could touch people who were involved in culture, banking, taxes, Fishermen, religious workers, military workers, people from every ethnic background and different cultures who were passing the border into the area. And 
because people traveled on the Via Maris, this highway. Jesus didn't have to go to the people. The people could come to Jesus. And Capernaum became so known for Jesus that even in Jesus' lifetime, it was called the city of Jesus. <clears throat> the city of Jesus. Jesus was the biggest tourist attraction in Capernaum. People just descended on Capernaum because Jesus was there. Isn't that amazing? That's great. Beautiful. That's just beautiful. I like that God is so strategic. I mean, God specifically chose somewhere where Jesus could touch a lot of people without leaving home. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? Just amazing. And if you study the Gospels, the majority of miracles which Jesus did happened in Capernaum or within just a few kilometers outside of Capernaum. The multiplying of the fish, the changing of the loaves, um, the, all those different miracles, that all happened right in Capernaum. Jairus, mm -hmm. the woman with the issue of blood, that all happened right in Capernaum. When Jesus came back from casting the demons out of the demoniac of Gadara, his boat came to Capernaum. Capernaum. All of that was in Capernaum. Okay, next question. Mm. Are there pagan Bible verses in the New Testament? Pagan Bible verses in the New Testament. Are there? That's a strange question. That's a strange question, but that's a very, very deep-thinking person who asked that question. So let's open <laughs> our Bible to Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, we find something very interesting. Acts 17? Acts 17. The Apostle Paul is preaching. He is in Athens, which is the center of paganism and idolatry. There were so many idols in um, Athens that one ancient writer wrote, there were more gods in Athens than people. We know that there were at least 10,000 idols. Now Paul is in the Areopagus. You say, what is the Areopagus? Okay, guys, can you tell me what Mars Hill or Areopagus, what, what does it look like? Areopagus or Mars Hill? It's the same thing. Oh, it's a big rock. It's up and sticks out. Everyone can see it. And it's next to the Acropolis. That's, that's, that's how I exactly it. what it is. But that was the seat of the ancient, what we would call Supreme Court. And there were 12 judges. They were called Areopagites. And Paul was brought there to speak to them because they heard that he was bringing some kind of new doctrine to the people of Athens, and they were to be judges of whether what he was saying should be permitted or not. So when you come to Acts chapter 17, listen to what the Bible says. First of all, Acts 17, verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? For he seems to be setting forth strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Well, first of all, they called him a babbler. This is so marvelous. The word babbler is the Greek word spermologos, from the word sperm, which is the word for seed, and the word words, logos. You put the two words together, a babbler really was a seed sower. He was sowing them with his words. Isn't that amazing? He was seeding them with the gospel. He knew that even if they didn't respond right now, later on those seeds would begin to take effect. Mm -hmm. He was seeding them with his words. And the verse goes on to say in verse 19, and they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, 
May we know what is this new doctrine whereof thou speakest. Then as you go on, listen to this, let me go on and find it. We go on and we find that Paul begins to use local objects to preach his message. For example, he found a pagan <coughs> idol that had no God standing on it. It was like an empty pedestal, but it was dedicated to the unknown God. And Paul said, hey, I'm going to use that as an illustration. And he began to preach about the God they did not know. Now, let's go on. And I want you to hear what he said. Verse 28. Paul said, For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now, people love those verses. They quote them all the time. We even used to sing that song. For in him we live and move and have our being. I don't remember the, how it goes. But, I mean, we sang and sang and sang that song. <clears throat> that is a direct quote from pagan poets and pagan philosophers. That is not a scripture. But Paul took it and he used it to preach. And it shows us that Paul was a man not just familiar with the Bible, he was familiar with literature. He was an educated man. And he was able to draw on that vast reservoir of information and knowledge in his head, and he knew how to use it to connect with his listeners. And I think that's a great encouragement. We need to be educated. Can I say something there, Rick? Sure. I think it also shows the wisdom of the Holy Spirit because he knows everything. He knows all that literature. And for that to come up out of Paul, Just at the right it point. was so wisdom. It was so much wisdom for him to just say that because then he was connecting to them and the Holy Spirit knew how to connect to those people. But he had to have something in his brain for the Holy Spirit to use. I mean, he didn't just come up with that. Yeah. That was already in him. And I think it's a real mistake when Christians just say, well, we don't need to read anything but the Bible. Well, I think that you need to primarily read the Bible. But God gave your brain. You need to understand other things, too. I'm amazed at how many Christians don't know anything about geography. Even when you talk about these biblical locations, they don't have a clue what you're talking about. They can't really connect to it. They can't even understand it because they don't know. We need to use our minds, fill them so that God has something to use. Amen. Okay, next question. <coughs> How many people are referred to in the New Testament as apostles? Anybody know? It's Twelve for sure. <laughs> Twelve for sure. It's over 70, I think. Well, there's different categories. There were more than 70 that were sent forth which is from the Greek word apostello, which can be translated apostle. And some people have broadly said, well, maybe they were all apostles. I don't think so. They may have been apostolic, but they weren't all apostles. But concretely, there were the first 12. I call these foundational apostles. But as you read throughout the New Testament, you find that there were 12 others who were also called apostles, including one woman. And she is listed in... Uh, Romans chapter 16, she was a relative of the Apostle Paul, and her name was Junia. A woman was listed as an apostle. So there are the 12 foundational apostles, then there are 12 more altogether. Concretely, there are 24 people named as apostles in the New Testament, but there will only be the first 12 foundational. Those were never repeated, never replicated. They were very unique. 
Okay, next question. What is, what is the hidden epistle to Pergamum in the New Testament? The hidden epistle to Pergamum. That's also another deep thinking question. Yes, it is. Hmm. Well, let me help you. Open your Bible to 2 John. 2 John. 2 John. You can't ask that kind of question unless you've already done quite a lot of studying. All right, let's go to 2 John. And I want you to see what the first verse says. Are you ready? Yes. The elder unto the elect lady. Oh. The elect, elect lady. lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all they that have known the truth. The question is, who is the elect lady in this verse? Who is she? Well, now let's go to 3 John. 3 John verse 1. The elder unto the well-beloved who? Gaius. 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 All right. Where was John living when he wrote these? Ephesus. He was living in Ephesus. He was the bishop of that whole region. You know who the elect lady was in Asia? The city of Pergamum. It was called the elect lady. And if you study the history of pastors in Pergamum, and it's all recorded in this book. I'm telling you, this book is loaded. It seems the first leader in Ephesus was Antipas. He's mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, 13, 14, 15. But when he died, the next pastor came into that position, and his name was Gaius. You know, because of early church fathers that wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, we even know who were the pastors of these churches. We know all the pastors in Smyrna. We know all the pastors in Ephesus. Wow. We know the first, second, third, fourth pastor in Pergamum, all the way to the Nicene Council. We have a list of all the pastors. Is that amazing? Amazing. And the elect lady was Pergamum, and Gaius was the pastor. And so it seems that Second John, under the elect lady, probably is the epistle to Pergamum. It would be like saying, I live in the Big Apple. Well, that's New York. Everyone that's, knows that's that. That's New York. And Third John was an epistle to the pastor of Pergamum, who by that time would have been Gaius. Why would John write to the church in Pergamum and to the pastor in Pergamum? Because Pergamum was the seat of the proconsul of Asia. The city itself was called the elect lady. It was the prestigious city. <clears throat> and he had a relationship with that city. Ephesus was called the light of Asia. It was so politically powerful that when a new governor came, a proconsul, he was required by a Roman law to disembark from his ship into Asia in Ephesus. That was a law. But as soon as he disembarked and withdrew all his ceremonies, he immediately began to go to Pergamum. He had to pass through Smyrna, stay all night in Smyrna, then keep traveling. He would come to Pergamum, which was high on a mountain, a very elite city, which was called the elect lady of the region. And that's where he ruled. And there was a real strong connection 
between Ephesus and Pergamum. But we're out of time. Did you guys enjoy this? Yes, it was special. Very much. We have a lot more questions to answer. So we're going to come back tomorrow night. And tomorrow night, we're going to have something new to show you. It's going to be fun. But sleep well. We'll see you tomorrow night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this teaching, please subscribe, like, and comment so more people can see it.